So if you will, turn in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, and your reading this week is going to take you into the book of Mark, specifically chapters 5 through 9, and the book that we're reading through, the 52 greatest stories of the Bible, will actually uh, focus in on the miracles, because this section of, of the gospel of Mark is just loaded with one miracle after another and does a fantastic job of talking about what faith really is and, and the material that you've got that goes along with it. We'll dive a little deeper into demonic possession, uh, healing, uh, and then also the, the subject of faith itself. What is true, genuine faith? And I think on Thursday's material, it does a really good job of kind of helping you to separate um, what biblical faith is from what really uh, faith as taught in a lot of churches today, which is not really true faith, it's faith in faith. And so uh, the material will do well to uh, help explain that. I thought about going that direction this morning, but as the week tarried on, I kind of took a different direction. Um, really feeling led to go back and reinforce uh, this passage of Scripture that we have preached, not from this particular passage, but from, uh, it's also mentioned in Luke chapter 9 and, and Matthew chapter 10, uh, this, these words of Jesus are found. But I thought it would uh, do us well to hear these words of Jesus again and to consider and contemplate uh, what is expected of us as genuine followers of Christ. And so this morning I've tagged this text, The Cost of Discipleship. That's not a title that's new, from, uh, new to me. That's actually just a title that I took from a great book written by a great Christian uh, from the mid-20th century, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so if you want to read a good book, uh, Bonhoeffer's book called The Cost of Discipleship I would say is probably one of the five or top five or top ten books every Christian should read outside of the Bible. So we're going to read the text as we go through the sermon. So stay right there in Luke chapter 8, I mean Mark chapter 8. Hopefully you found your place already. Today there is a faulty perspective of Jesus. And it grows worse and worse every day. That's extremely dangerous and seductive. This is exposed in a book written several year, years ago um, by, by a pastor named David Platt. David Platt was at the time uh, at the Church of Brook Hills in Birmingham when he wrote the book Radical. He has since moved on to... Uh, be the president of the International Mission Board, and has re recently resigned and moved on to pastoring a church in the Washington, D.C. area. But I, I want to read you a quote, a little section from David Platt's book, Radical, to kind of set the stage for what Jesus is going to say to us in Mark this morning. We American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus we are more comfortable with a nice, middle-class American Jesus. 
A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotional devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. A Jesus who wants to be, who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. Any fair and honest reading of Scripture will reveal that this is not who Jesus is and not what Jesus demands. Jesus says, die and then follow me. Today's text provides the answer to three crucial questions this morning. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And then most importantly, what does he expect you to do? In the beginning of what is called the Great Discipleship Discourse, which begins in chapter 8, verse 31, through chapter 10, verse 52, this is what is called the Great Discipleship Discourse in which three times Jesus predicts his passion or his death or his crucifixion. Immediately following each time, he instructs them concerning true discipleship. Isn't that interesting? Jesus three times in these next couple of chapters is going to predict his death, but with it follow the teaching of his death or the prediction of his death with a teaching of what true discipleship is. So let me ask you a question. Do you think there might be some kind of connection between the crucifixion and discipleship? I think there might be. He instructs them concerning true discipleship and what it means to truly follow him. Why? Because they just don't get it. Do you often, in reading the New Testament... And the words of Jesus, at times do you sense that there's just a little bit of frustration in Jesus' voice when he is talking to his disciples? <laughs> oh, ye of little faith, how long have I been with you? What I'm glad about that is that that means frustration is not altogether sinful. <laughs> Jesus got a little frustrated with his boys. They were slow, a little dim-witted in learning. Anybody in here a little slow to learn this morning? Hey, that's good. We're all in, you're in good company. We're in good company. In today's text, Peter tries to correct him on what kind of Messiah he will be. Now, that's interesting. You're going to see this in just a moment. Peter is going to try to tell Jesus, no, 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 no. That is not the kind of Jesus you are. This is the kind of Jesus you are. Now, we could stop and preach right there because I could bring out to you all kind of Jesuses that we have turned Jesus into, and none of them are Jesus. So, again, nothing new under the sun, right? Peter, we are still doing what Peter was trying to do during that time. In chapter 9, verse 34, they are debating the greatness. They're debating greatness in the kingdom. Who's going to be great? Do you remember how Jesus corrects that? <laughs> Oh, you want to be first? <laughs> be last. You want to be great? <laughs> be the least. You want to be in front? Get at the back. 
You want to be the highest? Go low. And then in 1037, James and John preempted the others in asking Jesus, well, which one of us will sit on the right and which one of us will sit on the left? And Jesus says, do you really know what you're asking? To which they should have reconsidered their question, but they seemed pretty confident that they knew what they were, they, they were asking. Our text is a simple explanation of, listen, I'm going to steal another title from a book that you should read. I'm going to give you a lot of books to read this morning, in addition to reading your Bible. A, a, a Chinese Christian pastor named Watchman Nee wrote a book called The Normal Christian Life. The Normal Christian Life. And that's really what Jesus is talking about here. He, he is laying out for us what it looks like to live the basic, normal life of a Christian. So, what does that look like? Well, Let's start elementary and work our way out from the text. Look in verses 27 through 30. And Jesus went, in, went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ. And he, strict, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So here's number one. Nothing, nothing profound here. Very simple and elementary, but sometimes the elementary and the simple is what gets us into trouble. You must know and personally confess who Jesus is. You must know and confess who Jesus is. Jesus takes the 12 north for a time of private instruction. Caesarea Philippi, which if you wanted to translate that modernly, so let me bring it down into good old Alabama language. It would be called Caesarville. Caesarville. That's, that's how we could interpret it. Becomes the location for the first human proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah. This is, in, this is a pivotal point in the story of the ministry of Jesus. Because this is the first time that a human being has declared Jesus to be the Messiah. What better place for the human declaration to take place than a city named after the most powerful human being of that day, Caesar. Our text marks a crucial turning point in the gospel story. Most scholars will tell, tell us that this is the hinge on which the whole gospel of Mark swings. We are swinging from one direction to another. As Jesus brought gradual physical sight uh, to the man who was blind in this same chapter uh, in Bethsaida, Jesus is now going to bring greater spiritual insight and sight to those whom he calls his disciples about who he is and what he will be. So you must know and personally confess who Jesus is. Why? Because there's one inescapable question in life. There's one inescapable question in life. And that is, who do you say that I am? 
That's the ultimate question this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus asked a straightforward question. Now, listen. Here's what I love about the the Bible and and, and reading through it the way we are reading through it. Is that this question that he is asking them is a question that he knows that they have been considering and pondering already. Because if you were to back up to chapter 4, verse 41, uh, when Jesus come to see, do you know what those, those, those guys ask? Who then is this? <laughs> They're already looking around asking the question, who is this guy that even the winds and the waves obey him? The disciples give the popular opinion of their day. They say, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Other people say that you're the reincarnation of Elijah. Others say that you are one of the prophets. And today we would say he's a great moral teacher. He's an example that we should all emulate. They honor him, but they misrepresent him. And in our day today, there are many people that will honor Jesus by what they say about him but they simply will not say what is accurate about him. They applaud him while denying who he really is. This inescapable question demands an accurate and an acceptable answer. Who do people say that I am? Well, if there is one, I mean, if there is one inescapable question... There can only be one acceptable answer. And that is found in verses 29 and 30 where Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter gives the accurate answer. You are the Christ. Now, so far in Mark's Gospel... Uh, We preached through Mark's gospel not long ago. If you remember, chapter 1, verse 1, Mark, the narrator, says Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God the Father says in chapter 1, verse 11, You are my beloved Son, I take delight in you. Demons, in chapter 1, verse 24, said the Holy One of God. They also said in chapter 3, verse 11, you are the Son of God. And then again, the third time, the demons in chapter 5, verse 7 said, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Isn't it interesting that so far we have gotten through eight chapters of Mark's gospel and yet have had someone to declare, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And until now, and Peter makes this declaration. At the end of this gospel, a Roman centurion will say, this man really was the Son of God in Mark 15, 39. And at the center of Mark's gospel, the voice of Peter is added, you are the Messiah. As a matter of fact, if you were to take and you were to find the center point of the book of Mark, guess what? That is the center point of the book of Mark. You think that happened by happenstance? That at the, at the very center of Mark's gospel is this declaration You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's by no mistake. It's there purposefully to show us that that there is but one answer to this all-important question. Listen, and you you may, as a Christian, you may be sitting here thinking, man, I 
I mean, I know this. I mean, why, why are you pounding on me this morning about he's the Christ, the Son of God, he's the Christ, the Son of God, he's the Christ, the Son of God. Listen, because though you may have said he is the Christ, the Son of God, you live inside a world that makes you want to say anything but he is the Christ, the Son of God. Why? Because the world wants to treat you and I as Christians like um, Nebuchadnezzar, wanted to treat the three Hebrew boys like he wanted to treat Daniel. Do you you remember what they said? Now look, you can do whatever you want to in your private life, but when you're out here in public and and the band starts playing and everybody's bowing down to the golden statue, out here in public, you're going to do what we want you to do, but in private, you can do whatever you want to do. Listen, it's the same, same today. It is not just enough for you and I to come into this place and to confess when asked the all-important question, who is Jesus? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is even more important that you and I, because Jesus is going to get to this in just a moment. He says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father, which is in heaven. What is Jesus saying? It's just as important that when in the world and the world asks you the question, Who is this man named Jesus? And you say he is the Christ. That means he is supreme. He is above all. He is the only Messiah. He is the only one that can forgive sin. He is God incarnate in the flesh. That's that's the answer that we must give. But the world's going to say, no, 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 no. You're going to have to, you're going to have to tone that answer down. You're going to have to come up with a, 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 an answer that's not so strong, one that's a, a little weaker, one that's not so offensive, one that doesn't stir up the waters, one that doesn't uh, 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 hurt people's feelings. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be sensitive to other people. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be compassionate to others. But listen, when it comes down to the bare bones, when it, where the rubber meets the road, you and I, when asked, who is Jesus? We must confess he is the Christ, the son of God. Nothing more, but nothing less. You know who they thought Jesus was at this point in time, right? One of the other prevailing thoughts um, and opinions concerning Jesus was found in Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And it says this, And the scribes who came from Jerusalem, down from Jerusalem, were saying, He's possessed by the devil. That's who they thought he was, a demon-possessed man. Maybe Beelzebub himself. Popular and trendy views of Jesus must always surrender to the clear and consistent witness of Scripture. No matter what the world calls Jesus, we must remain clear of who he is, and we must not submit ourselves or give in to what is popular or trendy concerning Jesus. Second point this morning from the text is, you must learn and affirm the ways of God and not man. You must learn and affirm the ways of God and not man. Now Mark chapter 1 verse 1 through Mark chapter 8 verse 30 has led to this confession. So we've been building to the confession. You are the Christ. Now in Mark 8:31 through Mark 16:8 
will lead to the confession, you are God's son, and will reveal the kind of Messiah he will be. What is that? A suffering Messiah. Something that has been hinted at in chapter 1, verse 11, and chapter 2, verse 20. But now it is about to be made plain. The first half of Mark focuses on who Jesus is. The gospel tells us the king has come. Our response is to repent and believe. The first confession comes from an insider when Peter says in 829, you are the Messiah, and the second half focuses on what he came to do. The gospel tells us the king must die. Our response is to take up the cross and follow him. This climactic confession comes from an outsider. So you've got an insider and an outsider. Praise God, it don't matter which, which, if you're on the inside or the outside, you can get in. It's found in that Roman centurion soldier in chapter 15, verse 39, where he says, this man really was God's son. A king who dies is not what they expected or what they wanted. It is, however, what they desperately needed. Aren't you glad that God never gives us what we expected or what we want, but he gives us what we desperately need? I mean, I, you know, I, I was pondering that, uh, you know, over the last several days, and I just think about all the stuff that I ever wanted, and I just thought about, my, what would my life be like if God would have given me what I wanted? Lord have mercy. A train wreck comes to mind. I saw a picture this week of where there was a house somewhere up north that uh, I think they, it had a gas leak and exploded. I don't know if any of y'all saw the pictures of that. And I mean, it was just, I mean, it looked like a bomb. I mean, it, I mean, it was nothing left of this house. And I thought, that, that's what it'd be like. Just a bomb, just obliterated. God's ways are often hard, but clear. God's ways are often hard, but clear. Look in verse 31, 32. And he began to teach them that the, son of, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Jesus begins a new chapter in his disciples' education. It is time for them to graduate, even if they're not ready. He will usher, he will usher in an eternal kingdom over which he will rule as king and as Lord. However... God's way will be different from what a world that exalts power would expect. He will suffer. He will be rejected, especially by the religious establishment. He will be killed, but he will rise three days later. All of this must happen, for this is the reason why Jesus came. This is what sin's payment demands, and we can't provide for it. This is where the law of God and the love of God will meet. This is where judgment and grace kiss. Rob, the word must, of its meaning, where Jesus said this must happen, and you empty the gospel of the cross, I mean, you, and you empty the gospel and the cross of its glories. God's ways are often hard, but they are clear. God's will is often a challenge, but it is perfect. 
God's will is often a challenge, but it's perfect. Look at 8, 32 and 33. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, watch, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Look, Peter was on board with Jesus being the Messiah. Peter was just not on board with Jesus going to the cross. As Jesus rebuked the demons in chapter 3, verse 12, Peter now rebukes Jesus. Jesus responds to Peter's rebukes by treating Peter like he was Satan or like he was a demon-possessed man. Actually, I think what's really the way Jesus is treating Peter here is just like Jesus treated Satan in the wilderness. Why? Because Peter, you know what Peter's doing in acting like Satan? When we study the temptation, Peter is offering Jesus a crown without a cross. Peter's like, I want you to be the Messiah. I want you to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I just want you to go some other way. I just want you to get there some other way. And that's exactly what Satan is doing in the temptation. He is offering Jesus an alternative route to the crown because he knows if he goes to the cross, the crown is inevitable. Satan knows that if he can get Jesus to go around the cross to get a crown, he'll never get the crown. Peter is basically telling Jesus, I got a better plan of salvation than you've got. You see, Peter wants a Jesus that fits his agenda. He thinks he knows what kind of Messiah Jesus needs to be and attempts to reshape and redefine him into this conception. Are we not guilty of the same? Give me a Jesus I can control, one I can conjure up in my image and my likeness. You and I must affirm the ways of God, not the ways of man. You may not fully understand it. It may not be an easy or safe. It may not be easy or safe. It will, however, be best. In fact, it will be perfect. So let's look at the last point this morning. You must understand and accept that Jesus calls you to die. This is what we're building towards. His will is a challenge, but it's perfect. And what is his will? His will is for you to die. Die to yourself. Look at how he spells it out. God's ways are often hard, but clear. They are challenged. His, his will is a challenge, but it's always perfect. The passion of, of the Christ reinforces these biblical truths. Confident that God's will is perfect, even if it may not be safe, we embrace the call of Jesus to follow him and then die in order that we and others might truly live. So listen, the self-centered life must be put to death. The self-centered life must be put to death. I don't believe that's ever gotten an amen the whole time I've ever been preaching. Not even from me, the preacher. 
Thank you. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus lays out the essence of the normal Christian life, the basics of discipleship, which sadly in our day looks like the radical Christian life. Being Jesus' the disciples requires you to, number one, deny yourself. That's it. That's number one. Give up your right to self-determination. Live as Christ directs. Treasure and value Jesus more than yourself, your comforts, your aspirations. Put to death the idol of I. You don't think we don't live for the idol of I? The, the, the TV, the, I mean, the, the, uh, uh, all the reality TV that's on, especially this uh, Bachelor and Bachelorette stuff. I, I don't, if you watch that, that's fine. I mean, I'm not, I'm not down in that stuff. But, there, I mean, it, that's like the epitome of I, right? I mean, one self-seeking woman or man, and I don't know what they bring in, like 20 other self-seeking men or women, all seeking self. Crazy. But that's, that's, what we, that's where we live. Say no to you and say yes to Jesus. Follow the footsteps of a guy named William Borden. I've told you about William Borden uh, many times. He was a man that was heir to, uh, to millions uh, upon graduation from college. But William Borden, uh, during a high school trip, uh, as a graduation present, came back from his uh, trip abroad, and he had been struck by the plight of people. He had been struck about the condition of the world, and he came back. And he committed himself uh, to the gospel, and he committed himself to taking the gospel to the world, and he entered Yale University where he graduated uh, and, and had a great influence spiritually on that university. But in his journal entry, while attending Yale University, he gives us some insight on what would cause him to walk away for millions of dollars in the early 1900s. I don't know what that equates to in 2019, but I, I, I'm sure it's a lot. If it was a lot in 1905, if a million, can you imagine what a million dollars would have bought you in 1905? That's what he walked away from. And in his journal, this is what he said. When you think, I mean, I think about, man, if I was... You know, like, I mean, if I had hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe that's what that equates to now. What would it take for me to walk away from that? And here's, here's what he wrote in his journal. Some things can be so simple, right? But yet so profound. This is what he wrote. Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Say no to self and say yes to Jesus every time. You see, when Jesus says, pack your bags, you're going to China in 1905, y'all think it's dangerous to go to China in 2019? Can you imagine what it was like in 1905? No planes, only a ship. Can you imagine how long it took on a ship to get to China in 1905? Do you think about all the perils that awaited you on the sea in 1905? And the call is, leave it behind and go to China. He never makes it to China because his boat docks in North Africa 
And while in North Africa, he's learning uh, the Islamic language because the section of China that he was going into uh, was an Islamic-speaking part of China because it bordered up against some neighboring countries. And he was there learning Arabic, learning Arabic. And while he was there, he caught a disease where he eventually died. He never made it to China. And people would be like, oh, what a waste of life. Maybe he wasn't listening to God, and that's why he died. Because if he'd have been listening to God, he wouldn't have died in North Africa. Maybe he was just doing what he wanted to do. You know what his last journal entry was before he died? No regrets. No regrets. He was exactly where God wanted him to be. We got this crazy notion that if you just do what Jesus says, <laughs> tells you to do, that somehow your life's going to be safe. I believe Jesus did everything that God wanted him to do, and he lived in anything but safety. Maybe you shouldn't gauge that you're in the will of God by how secure your life is right now. It could be more of a sign you're not in the will of God. Just throwing it out there, just something for you to chew on, meditate on. We have to deny ourselves. I've I'm, I'm, got to skip some stuff here just because we don't, we don't have time for it this morning. But let me just say this. You and I have got to live daily dying to ourselves. That was Paul. If you were to sum up Paul's Christian life, Paul would simply say in Philippians 1.21, I die daily. I die daily. You want to you, you make something of your spiritual life? Then die daily. Second, Jesus said you got to take up your cross. You got to take up your cross. You got to die yourself, take up your cross. Like, like denying yourself's not enough. It's like deny and take up your cross. And in Luke 9, 23, he says you got to take it up daily. Taking up your cross does not mean putting up with difficult people. So if tomorrow you go, you're going to your job and you've got to put up with some difficult people, that's not taking up your cross. If next week is the family reunion and you've got some really difficult people in your family to deal with, going to your family reunion is not taking up your cross. If you've got to set through bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic every day just to get to work, and people don't know how to drive, and they don't know how to act and behave, that's not taking up your cross. Nor did it mean that we should add more suffering to our lives or let people victimize us and abuse us in a psychologically twisted way. Everyone in Jesus' day knew what taking up your cross meant. The cross was more than an instrument of death. Listen, when you took up your cross, it meant, first of all, that you were going to be ridiculed, spat upon, and persecuted for your faith. That's what it means to take up your cross. When's the last time you got ridiculed? When's the last, somebody, when's the last time somebody spat on you? I'd probably say none of us have had that happen. When's the last time we were persecuted or ridiculed? So faith isn't an invitation... Uh, so this isn't an invitation to allow people to abuse you. It is a specific invitation to follow Jesus even when you're ridiculed or mocked. And then finally he says, follow me. Are you willing to believe and obey Jesus? It will be radical, not comfortable, because it involves a death of, of the self-centered life. Disciples die so that they can live. 
Jesus lays out the cost. He does not hide his demands in fine print or in language that requires a skilled lawyer to interpret it. His demands are plain spoken, bold, and clear. The, listen, we talked about, Matthew brought up something that really kind of got my wheels turning a couple of Wednesday nights ago. About is, salva- or is it right for us to use that salvation is free? It was a good question. It was a good thought. So, the price of salvation is free. You cannot earn it, for Christ has paid its demands by taking up the cross. The possession of salvation is what? Follow me. So you must exchange your life for his life by taking up your cross. So the price of salvation is free. Jesus pays for it. You can't earn it. But listen, but for you to possess that salvation, for you to have that salvation... Here's what Jesus says. I give you my life. You give me your life. Let me ask you a question. I just want you to think about this. How many of us, or are there many, maybe one or two in here, that have, this is the way we've treated salvation. I take your life. I hold on to my life. Huh? I mean, who don't want Jesus' life, right? I mean, who doesn't want to take hold of that? Because here is what Jesus will go on to say. He says, he that keeps his life will, what? Lose it. You see, it is what Martin Luther said. It is the great exchange. It is, I take his life and I give him my life. But listen, somebody would say, oh, oh, but hey, I thought it was free. I thought it was free. And this is kind of where Matthew's kind of got me tripped up and thinking. and got my, my gears turning, my gray matter working and waking up at 3.15 in the morning thinking about this. Here it is. It still is free. Why? I didn't bring my keys in here. So let's just imagine that I got my keys to my 1981 Pinto right here. Mint condition, by the way. And I say, you can have my Pinto. All right? That's what I got. My Pinto. And Jesus says, great, I'll take your Pinto. Here's my Ferrari. Did I lose anything? Did it cost me anything? I believe Jesus lost and I gained. So it's a, I mean, it's an exchange that you just look at in your life. How do you not make that exchange? I haven't lost anything. It didn't cost me anything. It's still free. As a matter of fact, it's more than free. Why? Because I've got, I've, I mean, I've got a Ferrari. I've got, I've got a reward here that's far beyond anything that I've given up. That's why when the guy's walking around in the field and he finds the treasure, he runs back and he sells all that he has. He takes it. He buys the field. Why? Because what's in the field far exceeds whatever he's lost. Therefore, he has not earned anything. He's just taken what is there. He's exchanged something 
that is very little for something that is infinitely value, valuable. And listen, that's what true Christianity is. True Christianity is not that I take Jesus and hold on to my life. It's I take his life, but I give him mine. And if you haven't done that, you don't have true Christianity. You've got American Christianity, which says take Jesus and keep your life. Look, you've got to put the safe life to death. There's so much I want to say about that too, but can't. You just got to put it to death. Christianity is not safe. I got into a, a heated discussion years ago at, in this church with an individual behind closed doors because I made the statement. And I said, it is, it, it is absolutely wrong for you to say the safest place in the world is in the center of God's will. How many of y'all have ever heard that? The safest place in the world is in the center of God's will. That is not true. It, 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 it's the most dangerous place in the world. Why? Because being in God's will might cost you your life. There's a lot of people that are living today because they're living outside of God's will. They're living in safety. You get in the center of God's will, that's where... Dang, I mean, it's like the old... Uh, TV show, it's danger, Will Robinson, danger, there's danger, there's danger. Why? Because Jesus may, he may lead you somewhere that is not safe. No, my Jesus wouldn't do that. Oh, yes, he would. Do you know how many people I know that do not go on mission trips because, to certain areas because they're like, well, I just heard it was real dangerous down there. To which I often respond, do you drive I-20? Do you go to the city of Anniston ever? Y'all do know that per capita is the highest crime, highest crime rate city in the United States per capita. The city of Anniston, Alabama, of which I live in. Uh, I-20, one of the most dangerous interstates in all of the United States. But I don't see people not driving the interstate. The self-serving life must be put to death. My last point, the, the safe life must be put to death, but the self-serving life must be put to death. On April 17, 1998, Linda McCartney, wife of Paul McCartney of the Beatles, died. Newsweek concluded its article on her death by saying this, The McCartneys had all the money in the world, enough to afford their privacy, enough to give them a beautiful view, but all the money in the world wasn't enough to keep Linda McCartney alive. Jesus said you can gain the whole world and yet lose your soul. The self-serving life must be put to death. I'll read two quotes to end. I, they'll both be on the screen. The first one is from pastor, teacher, John Piper, to which he says this. Go ahead. 
Let me just read it to you. What's the opposite of being ashamed of somebody? Being proud of them, admiring them, not being embarrassed to be seen with them. Because Jesus says, if you deny me before men, that's the last verse, verse 38, I'll deny you before my father. Loving to be identified with them. So Jesus is saying, if you're embarrassed by me and the price I paid for you, and he's not referring to lapses of courage when you don't share your faith, but a settled state of your heart towards him. If you're not proud of me and you don't cherish me and what I did for you, if you want to put yourself with the goats that value their reputation in the goat herd more than they value me, then that's the way I will view you when I come. I will be ashamed of you, and you will perish with the people who considered me an embarrassment. Now, Bonhoeffer, last, last quote. Bonhoeffer from his book on the cost of discipleship. And listen, it did cost Bonhoeffer his life. Partly because he tried to kill Hitler. He tried to assassinate Hitler. So that ended up being his demise. But the reason why he did it is because he was one of the few Christians in Germany who were standing up against Nazism as it was, as it was spreading. Look what he says. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Jesus summons to the rich young man, was calling him to die. Because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die. With all of our affections and lusts, but we do not want to die. And therefore, Jesus Christ and his call are necessarily our death as well as our life. The call to discipleship, the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, means both death and life. So this morning, I simply ask us, as the people of Eureka Baptist Church, where are we? Where are you? Hmm? Is there anybody in here this morning who has said, I've, I've taken Jesus, but I'm holding on to my life? I would ask you to genuinely consider whether you're genuinely a Christian or not. And then there, are, there, there could be many of us in this room. We've taken Jesus, and, and, and we've kind of given Jesus a few things in our life, but he keeps coming back for more, huh? Anybody know anything about that? Like he keeps pointing out in your life, I want that, and I want that, and I want that, and I want that, and I want this, and I want this over here. And, and we let it go to only take it back. And he's saying to you this morning, to me this morning, you've come a long way, but you've got a long way to go. You've surrendered some stuff, but there's a whole lot more stuff that ain't yet been surrendered. You're mine, but I want more of who you are. Why? Because I want to give you more of who I am.
Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, we can't be but in two positions. We're either in the position of we have reached out and taken hold of you, but yet we are, we're holding on to everything in our life. And it would be hard for us to make a case standing before you for our salvation. Father, there are many in this room that have reached out by faith and they've taken hold of you because you've taken hold of them. And there's a lot of, there's stuff in their life that have been surrendered years ago. Victories have been won years ago, but there is stuff in our life that in the last few days you've been pointing out and calling us to surrender. There's some stuff in our life that for 10 years now you have been after us to surrender and to let go of, and yet we just keep holding on. And there's stuff in our life that we let go of a week ago, only to yesterday go back and pick it back up again. And you're knocking and you're saying, I want that. I want you to surrender that. Let it go. Give it to me. Die to that. There's life in death, so die. Father, this morning as we sing, I pray that you would help us to respond in a way that would bring us to you by faith and salvation, or Father, that would lead us in greater surrender to you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.